Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Simone Fishburn, Editor-in-Chief. Steve Hudson, Washington Editor. Alrighty, we have a great podcast for you today. We're going to introduce something new from BioCentury that'll be coming out this week. We will be going to Washington to get an update from Steve on Robert Califf and his quest to become the next permanent FDA commissioner. And Steve will also bring us up to speed on what is happening with the Biden team's COVID response. Hal Barron is on his way out the door as GSK's R&D head will talk about what that means for the pharma and what's next for Hal in his scientific and leadership endeavors. But first, BioCentury This Week is brought to you by ICON, a leading clinical research organization powered by healthcare intelligence. ICON advances clinical research by providing outsourced services to pharma, biotech, and other healthcare organizations. ICON offers a flexible partnership model for biotechs, starting in the preclinical phase, through real-world studies, and into commercialization. Learn more at iconplc.com slash biotech. All right, this week, BioCentury launches the BioCentury Show, a 30-minute in-depth conversation with some of the most important and interesting people in life sciences. And I'm fortunate enough to have our two hosts of the BioCentury Show, Steve and Simone. Uh, Simone, what are you most looking forward to about the BioCentury Show? Well, I think this is really going to be an interesting series of conversations. We'll have the leading voices in the biopharma ecosystem, and we really have an opportunity to go in depth with them one-on-one in conversation. Our guests are going to span the spectrum from pharma CEOs to regulators, former regulators, heads of R&D, CEOs of prominent companies, and obviously KOLs from the academic and nonprofit sectors. One of the things that's going to be fun about this is that at BioCentury, in the course of our regular analysis, we get to talk to people like this all the time. Now with this show, we get to have these conversations in front of the public and to really go deep on some issues. Steve, I know you've got some interesting topics in your first episode lined up. So the first show is going to be really fun. It's going to be Scott Gottlieb, who everybody knows, the former FDA commissioner, member of the board at Pfizer and Illumina, partner at uh, NEA, the, the VC firm, and many other things. It's hard to actually imagine how he does all the things that he does. Some of the other shows we're going to have are also going to feature people in public policy, prominent people in public policy. Like you said, I think it's going to be exciting. One of the things that's good about it is it's going to be open access. Anybody will be able to have access to it. I did a TV show for BioCentury years ago. It ran for about four years. And one of the things that I found that was most rewarding about it was that people outside of the biopharma space, people who wouldn't ordinarily read BioCentury, were among the viewers. And I, I had really interesting conversations. I had conversations with 
people at checkout counter who had seen the show and wanted to talk about public policy issues related to the life sciences. So it's, it's really interesting to have an opportunity to dig in deep and provide content that's going to be valuable for kind of our core audience, people who are really who eat, breathe and live these issues every day, as well as um, as a general public. That's one of the things that the pandemic has really brought out. It's kind of opened the eyes of everybody in the country, maybe everybody in the world, to the importance of the things that we've been covering for decades. And this show is a way of, you know, kind of giving something back, I think, to all of the people who, who are affected by these issues and digging in deep with the people who are influencing the future. Now, we've been busy booking guests. Uh, who else are you excited to have on? Well, um, Steve is starting with Scott Gottlieb, former FDA commissioner, and as Steve pointed out, a litany of other things. We're also going to be featuring John Euler, who is the CEO of Beijing, really probably the most prominent, if not one of the most prominent companies in China. Jamie Rubin, who is now CFO at EQRX and was long time at Goldman Sachs, is going to be in conversation with me. Uh, I'm very much looking forward to that. Jamie is always a blast to talk to. And we have Matai Maman, who is head of R&D at J&J. Laurie Glimcher, who is the CEO at Dana-Farber. And Steve, you've got Steve Pearson from ICER lined up, I know. Yeah, Steve Pearson, the CEO of ICER. And Richard Hatchett, the head of CEPI, which is probably one of the most interesting and important organizations that very few people in the world have heard about. And we'll have Michael Gato. He's the global head of healthcare investment banking at JP Morgan. So it's a great lineup. As Steve said, like the podcast, it will be an open access show every two weeks. You can learn more at thebiocenturyshow.com. That's where you can watch the show or you'll be able to listen via your favorite podcast app. Steve, speaking of Gottlieb, what's happening in Washington? Any updates on Calif? I kind of feel a need for an FDA commissioner around now. Yeah, well, it is interesting. We're going into the second year of the Biden administration and we don't have a permanent FDA commissioner. Regarding his Rob Califf's nomination as FDA commissioner, surprise, surprise, there's politics in Washington. Republicans who oppose FDA's approval or the way it regulates abortion medicines are trying to scuttle Califf's nomination. I don't think that they're going to succeed, but nothing's certain. It's going to be close because several Democrats have said that they'll vote against him. They don't believe he's been tough enough on opioids. Steve, what's the timeline that this is going to play out in? We don't really know what the timeline is. He's passed the help committee, so the Democratic leadership could bring it to the floor anytime that they want. What it looks like is happening is that they're trying to make absolutely sure that they've got all the votes lined up to get him through before they bring it to the floor. And we don't know what the timing of that's going to be. Let me ask you, Steve, because you started out by saying, you know, we're in our second year of the uh, Biden presidency. Does that create any pressure for Biden? Does he feel the time crunch in this at all? Or is it just not He's got so many other things going on with the pandemic and things that this isn't really going to impact him that much, however long it takes. I don't know whether Biden personally feels pressure about it, but certainly the Biden administration does. Not having a Senate-confirmed FDA commissioner has been an impediment, I think, to the FDA's response to COVID. 
Not to say that Janet Woodcock hasn't been doing the job. She certainly has been, and she hasn't really been taking the acting part of it seriously. She's been the FDA commissioner for all intents and purposes, but she doesn't have the political support that a confirmed FDA commissioner would have. We're going to be going in very soon to the reauthorization of the User Fee Act into budget discussions for FDA and other issues. And it's really going to be essential to have a confirmed commissioner in place to represent the agency and the administration in front of Congress on those kinds of issues. Let me tack on one more question for you, Steve. How about the NIH director? And are there any sort of calendar pressures on that? There haven't been calendar pressures on it. It hasn't gotten as much public attention as the FDA commissioner whole. It hasn't been vacant nearly as long either. But um, look, it's an extremely important position. It's probably the most important position in the entire world when it comes to the life sciences research funding. And it takes a long time for anybody who's going to be in that position to put together a team and to start making change. There's three years left in the Biden administration. There's no guarantee that whoever gets the job is going to stay in place after the end of the Biden administration. So for someone to get in there and actually make their mark and to start making some changes, they're going to have to nominate them and get them confirmed fairly quickly. All right, Steve, uh, what else is happening in Washington? Well, there's what's happening and there's what's not happening. Obviously, the Build Back Better bill is not happening, at least not as it was proposed. There's a lot of talk about trying to bring back bits and pieces of it. And if that happens, it's likely that the drug pricing regulation aspects of it would be brought back. But I don't think that anybody's willing to put serious money on that being successful. On COVID, there's a growing sense among public health experts in Washington that the Biden administration has drifted off course. There's both too little and too much coordination. The White House has centralized pandemic decision-making among a very small, tight group, and there's consternation among public health experts, including some who are on the Biden transition team. The mistakes are being made because proposed policies aren't being pressure-tested by people with deep experience. On the other hand, there's a sense that FDA's integrity is being undermined by White House statements and leaks. Telegraphing regulatory decisions in advance has been absolutely taboo for most of my career, but it's become routine in the COVID era, and that really doesn't help build confidence in FDA. There are other consequences of the lack of coordination uh, that are becoming obvious. Confusion about advice and policies on everything from boosters to masks. We're entering the third calendar year of the pandemic, and testing and surveillance in the U.S. are still inadequate. And now there's the rollout of the antivirals that some members of the Biden administration believe would be game changers. That's what David Kessler, who's running what used to be called Operation Warp Speed, told me some months ago, that these could be game changers. But it's hard to see how that's going to happen without some changes. There's kind of an an obstacle course now that patients have to go through in order to get access to the Pfizer antiviral, Paxlovid. First, they have to get a PCR test, which in many parts of the country, including Washington, D.C., is really problematic. Then they have to get an appointment with a physician. Then they have to get a prescription. Then they have to go to a pharmacy that has the drug in stock. And they have to do all of this within a few days of the onset of symptoms. It's really a daunting thing. 
and it's going to exacerbate disparities in access to care. Many people would argue that it could have been done better, should have been done better, and that it could still be changed to make it much more user-friendly for patients who need these drugs that are going to keep them out of the hospital and, and save lives. Yeah, I think the testing issue is really one of the biggest stumbling blocks. Just to clarify, in Washington, D.C., everybody can actually get a PCR test, but it takes two or three days to get the result, which isn't that much help if you're trying to get a therapeutic before you get into hospital. So, you know, there's a lot of confounding issues here. And I, I would I would disagree a little bit. Not everybody can get a PCR test. You or I can get a PCR test for both in Washington, D.C., because we know how to navigate the system. It's not easy. I've tried to do it for myself. I've tried to do it for friends and family members. And I don't think that everybody who lives in the District of Columbia would be able to navigate the process and get a PCR test. And as you say, if it comes back in two days or three days, its utility is is limited, especially if you're trying to get coordinated to get an antiviral that you're supposed to start within five days of the onset of symptoms. Right. And just to acknowledge also our international audience, I know that many of these issues are actually global, or at least in many countries. Very oftentimes you need to have a cell phone, computer even, in order to access the available either therapies or tests. And many people just don't have that. So I think a lot of these issues are really problematic, both for this administration and in different countries around the world. I think the confusion over tests. And in fact, with the Omicron surge, the lack of reliable evidence over which tests works and when, I mean, we've probably all got anecdotal stories about that, is really difficult. So it's hard to know whether they can fix anything or whether the surge is going to be over before they do that. And then they'll be, you know, like all generals fighting the last war before the next uh, surge comes along. One point on the testing, I think that's a a positive note, is that uh, Tom Inglesby has gone to the White House to take charge of the administration's testing policy. He's one of the most respected voices and and thinkers in uh, biopreparedness policy. And I think it's going to be very interesting to see what kind of changes he manages to to put in place. Excellent. Thanks for that, Steve. And I hope it warms up for you in the district. I know it's it's a little chilly for, for you folks over there. Let's turn to GSK, already under investor pressure for more than a year now, including getting a few calling cards from Elliott Advisors, as well as Bluebell Capital. And now Hal Barron, the CSO, has announced his departure. Simone, what does this mean for the embattled pharma? Can I call them embattled? Um How's it going for GSK and what's next for for Hal? We're going through a few battles. I'd go with that. Let's just say what is happening. Hal Barron, who is the uh, head of R&D at GSK, at the end of the summer in August, is going to leave to become CEO of Altos Labs, a new company that will be working on human longevity, for those of you who are interested in a long life. And this is actually not his first gig doing that. He previously came from Calico, which had a very similar brief. So clearly, Dr. Barron is interested in uh, long lives and certainly the biology behind them. But, you know, at GSK, Tony Wood is going to step into Hal Barron's shoes. And 
He's kind of got his work cut out for him, as does Emma Walmsley. I mean, my colleague Lauren Martz wrote a, a story this week about the departure, and she also listed, oh, more than a dozen fairly high-level GSK departures since the beginning of last year. So there's a lot of turnover, and there was actually some turnover, high-level turnover even before that. You talked about investor pressure. Even aside from sort of activist investors, GSK as one of the two very big farmers, the other being AstraZeneca in the UK, they're often pitted one against the other. And in a similar time, AstraZeneca has turned the ship around and really returned a lot of value to shareholders in increasing stock price. And GSK has has not delivered those kind of uh, results. So what happened was Howell joined and together with Emma Walmsley, the CEO, they decided to sort of undo a decision that was made a few years prior where GSK had gotten out of oncology in an asset swap with Novartis. They got back into oncology and started to build up the pipeline. They had some high-profile deals. GSK bought Tesoro, pumped their pipeline up. But, you know, it's been pretty static the last couple of years. They're shy of some very big wins, certainly in oncology. They did have a couple of drugs make it to market. They haven't yet sold very much. Probably GSK's biggest R&D win of the last year or two is actually its partnership with Veer, which has produced the only authorized COVID monoclonal that is actually effective against Omicron, as at least the anecdotes go and some of the reporting suggests. So, you know, Tony Wood steps into a difficult position. He has to continue what Hal left undone or add to it. And most of all, I guess, in my way of thinking about it, is, is stop some of the bleeding there. So one of the things that's interesting to me, you, you mentioned Novartis and the swap. They got the Novartis vaccine assets and their R&D programs. I know GSK employees who left the company because they were disappointed that it didn't jump in quickly like Pfizer and BioNTech and Moderna did to develop a COVID vaccine. It had a, a self-amplifying mRNA technology but it didn't take the kind of risks that the other companies took. BioCentury reported in the first week of January, just a couple of weeks ago, that GSK had finally published preclinical data from a two-dose self-amplifying mRNA vaccine that neutralized alpha, beta, and delta variants in mice and protected hamsters from disease. And the vaccine's now in a phase one human clinical trial. As you mentioned, GSK partnered with Veer on a very successful monoclonal antibody, They also partnered with Sanofi on a vaccine that didn't pan out or hasn't panned out yet. And I think that one of the problems that they have had is kind of a morale problem among their R&D staff who would hoped that the company would have jumped in in a much more proactive way on COVID. Yeah, that's really true, Steve. It's obviously always difficult on the outside to know what kind of internal decision-making is happening. GSK, as you point out, had a lot of expertise in vaccines. You would have thought that they would have been a front runner, in particular, since they had that technology. I think it's probably important to note when you talk about morale, how Barron remained in the Bay Area, headquartered in the Bay Area. He did not move to the UK when he took this role. He's still in the Bay Area. How much that's an influence on either his commitment or the perception by GSK employees, I don't know. GSK doesn't have a big outpost in the Bay Area. So I think that you could look at it and say, 
how much was he ever really in? He was in Calico beforehand. He's now gone back to that. He's certainly an extremely erudite and thoughtful scientist. He's a very knowledgeable person. He knows R&D as well. And, you know, maybe it just didn't click with GSK for him, or maybe he just found the idea tantalizing of a startup doing some really edgy science. I, I don't know. And we don't know what went on behind those decisions. But as you say, there is a knock-on effect on morale. And we know that globally in the industry, retaining talent is a, is a difficult thing right now. So I think, yeah, GSK has got a lot to work on right now. Yeah. And just looking at this list, since last January, at least four leaders in the vaccine segment have departed, including Amin Khan, who was head of the vaccines R&D acceleration team. And I think just last week, Russell Thirsk, head of operations at GSK Vaccines in Belgium, announced he would depart and two to three others. You had Emmanuel um, Hanon, who was SVP and head of vaccine R&D, Herve mm-hmm. Gissero, who was SVP and head of pharmaceuticals and vaccines, Greater Chaita and Intercontinental, and Loic Moreau, who was head of transformation of the vaccine segment. So that's at least five people related to vaccines who've left. Um, yeah. And as I said, more than a dozen altogether. It's not all bad. Tony Wood can lean on the company's very successful respiratory and HIV businesses, which together account for more than 80% of the company's new and specialty pharma revenues. In those disease areas, Wood inherits pipelines with several late-stage candidates. Emma Walmsley is still there. So we'll see where uh, Tony Wood and Emma Walmsley can take the company this year. All right, let's turn to our emerging company spotlight. We profiled four emerging companies last week. 64X Bio aims to break bottlenecks in viral vector manufacturing with its iterative barcoding and modeling-based approach to cell line engineering. Last week, the company raised $55 million in a Series A round. The Harvard spin-out is starting with customized ways to boost the amount of vector produced per cell, but it could expand to off-the-shelf solutions and additional approaches focused on vector quality. The company was created to address the mismatch between viral vector manufacturing need and capacity particularly for gene therapies. That's what co-founder and CEO Lex Rovner told my colleague, Karen Takach-Tuzman. Rovner was a postdoc in George Church's lab, and she said that other applications on the company's list include viral vector vaccines and oncolytic viruses. Also raising money last week, LA area-based biotech impact came in with $111 million Series B, led by VenBio to advance a lead bispecific CAR-T program that's already generating responses in a clinical study. VenBio also led a $75 million round for Scepter Therapeutics, 
Strategic Investor, Bristol Myers Squibb was in that, and Chi Ming USA also invested. I actually believe they co-led on that. The platform of this new co is based on work from Samuel Gunderson and his colleagues at Rutgers University in the great state of New Jersey. The platform centers on engaging the U1 small nuclear ribonuclear protein for targeting gene silencing as an alternative to RNAi and antisense technologies. We also profiled Avalar, which is designing extracellular protein degraders by harnessing a natural process through which proteins are internalized and degraded in the liver. The company concept originated at RA Capital Management, which has invested in several intracellular protein degradation companies. All four profiles, as long as our colleague Lauren's piece on where things are with GSK are on our website, biocentury.com. And don't forget to tune into the Biocentury show when it launches later this week. That is our all new 30 minute in-depth conversation with some of the most important and interesting people in life sciences. We'll have two shows a month and you can learn more at biocenturyshow.com. You'll be able to watch the show there as well. And you can also listen via your favorite podcast app. Speaking of podcasts, our podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. And Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for our podcasts, as well as the BioCentury show, I'm very pleased to say. And that group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education.